Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henrik is Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and today I am just thrilled to have Laurie Rader Day on the podcast. Laurie is the Edgar Award nominated and Anthony Award and Mary Higgins Clark Award winning author of The Lucky One, Under a Dark Sky, The Day I Died, Pretty Little Things, and The Black Hour. She co-chairs the Mystery Conference Murder and Mayhem in Chicago and is the immediate past national president of Sisters in Crime. Her next book, Death at Greenway, is based on a little-known moment in history where a group of Londoners were evacuated from the Blitz during World War II to Agatha Christie's Holiday Estate. Welcome to the podcast, Laurie. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here and that we're going to talk about a lot of different things, Um, but I'm going to start off the way I start off these conversations and ask you um, about your writing journey, but specifically, when did you say to yourself, I want to write a book? I had always written stories uh, as long as I can remember. I know my first fiction was when I was six or seven years old. I was a big reader, and I loved these books um, with a character named Ramona Quimby in them. Uh And one day, I remember noticing that there was a name on the cover uh, that was not Ramona. It was this Beverly Cleary so-and-so. And I wondered, now, who is this person? What's going on here? And I worked it out. It's the the woman who's writing these stories. And I, I just remember thinking, there are people who write stories, and and I maybe I could try. And I tried. I didn't get very far for very long. Um, But that was my very first attempt. So mostly, you know, I've always been the kid who who told the stories. My grandmother liked to have me tell the stories of our family trips, even though she was there. She liked to hear how I would tell it. (laughs) Yeah. And and, and sometimes read it to the family members at family reunions. You know, I'm like, now I wonder, God, what was I saying? Uh, you know, what was I missing? What was I getting wrong? You know? Um, but, uh, I didn't get serious about it for a long time. I was, uh, in the creative writing club in high school and won a contest. Um, and I wrote in college, you know, I got published in the little journal that the school had, but I didn't get serious, uh, until I was an adult and I had had about uh, five years where I hadn't written a single thing. And just, you know, hadn't been, you know, inspired to, or just sort of had fallen out of a habit or, or hadn't claimed that part of your life yet. I think definitely out of the habit. Um, I got into a little bit of a habit in college, Um, But never, I just never really had a habit, I think, is what the problem was. It was always something that I liked to do that I was sort of known with my friends for doing, but it wasn't something I'd ever built any discipline for. And at some point, um, I just really fell out of the habit. I moved to Chicago with my now husband, got a writing job, and wrote some really excellent articles on healthcare, just really, really good. But, um, you know, that wasn't what I wanted to be writing. And I was using up all of my, uh, you know, my writing time, my screen time at work and coming home and, and not doing any. So there are a couple of things we can talk about here. One is, you know, that people will get jobs writing nonfiction because their jobs and they're paying the bills, but it, it, it's still writing muscle and it can deplete your writing energies. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. I, I liked having a writing job. It was, you know, what I had sort of trained to do in college. And I also had a master's in journalism by this point. Um, and it was, it was interesting writing. Um, and I was good at it. 
but it really did deplete all my creative energy. And maybe that's just work. Maybe, maybe just regular work does that too. Um, but I have always taken these jobs, you know, using the skills that I have and then, uh, those skills get used up at work and then I go home and, and have trouble getting words on the page. And so how did you, uh, get back into or embrace a writing habit, uh, that, that brought you on your publishing path, which is a different path. The writing path and the publishing path are different, but how did you make that leap into that? I have to. I have to write, do creative writing for me. Yeah. Um, so remember I said I won a contest back in high school. Um, I was a sophomore and I beat the senior boy who had been sort of winning every year. Um, just FYI, not a great way to make friends. Um, <laughs> no, actually we were really good friends and still are. But in 2006, um, he published his first book and I remember hearing this news and just being completely dumbfounded, so happy for him, so honestly happy for him. I went down to the Barnes and Noble and bought all six copies they had on the shelf, you know, and just like <laughs> handed them out. Um, uh, Christopher Koch, We're in Trouble is the name of that book and that author. Uh, but I also was green with envy, of course. And But the part that really I remember just being very surprised by was that Somebody from where we came from in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, was allowed to write stories and create stories. Mm -hmm. It's something that I hadn't realized at all. Um, you know, he was in, he had done the thing that I hadn't do. He had centered his life around writing, uh, going to school for creative writing, not journalism, Lori. Uh, he had, you know, worked at a bookshop. He had all these writing friends and writing professors and, and wrote. He did the work. And I had not been doing any of that. So I, I decided it was time for me to get serious or just stop. I need to shut up or put up, right? And um, so I actually applied to go back to school. I got into a program here in Chicago that I could do without having to upend our lives and uh, went back to school and started writing again, actually writing instead of just talking about it or complaining about it or whining about it, um, actually doing the work. And uh, it wasn't too long before I started writing stories that got published. And, and that was how I started getting published, just writing short stories. And so this program uh, was an MFA program. Yes, Correct. MFA program at Roosevelt University. They would, of course, love a shout out. So there you go, Roosevelt University. And sometimes MFA programs uh, don't embrace genre in quite the same way that uh, other programs might. So, and so did you set out to be a crime writer or, or were you writing literary fiction, like what's your journey in the crime writing yeah. um, realm? Because they're not always, they don't always support each other. No, that's true. A lot of programs are not friendly to genre writers. I've, I've heard lots of terrible stories in that vein. Um, I was not a genre writer when I was applying to my program and, and even graduating from my program. Um, it took me a long time to figure out what kind of writer I was. So while I was at, in my program, I was just writing whatever stories occurred to me. I, you know, I didn't really necessarily think of them as a type of story. They were just stories. Um, some of them had crimes. Some of them did not. One of them had a crime in it and, and got sort of long. It was a, about a 40 or 50 page short story. Um, and in my workshop, the other students liked it, but they, they were only seeing probably about 20 pages and they wanted more and more and more and more and more of everything, more of this character, more of this background, more about this history. And um, I went to my teacher to complain about that and ask what I was supposed to do. Uh, what, you know, how am I supposed to add all this more when it's already a beast of 50 pages? And she said, yeah, Lori, that's called a novel. <laughs> um, you should start, you should keep writing, uh, which is, you know, great advice. I wasn't sure, uh, that I was going to, but then I also got a chance to send, uh, I applied for a fellowship program that doesn't exist anymore. Unfortunately, it was just a weekend in Indiana, um, under the Midwest writers workshop, uh, 
umbrella and I got in and it was really exciting because, um, to me, this was the first sort of non-college thing that I was get as a writer that I was getting to do. So I show up, I'm so excited. And when I get there, they had placed me not in the fiction group, not in the nonfiction group, but in the mystery group. There were three groups hmm. and I was put in the mystery group. And it was, it was, I, I, I was so disappointed at first because I thought, oh, I'm watching the fiction group walk away thinking, wait, you know, I, I don't even know what's happening here. And the teacher uh, was Terrence Faraday, who's a, a crime writer from Indianapolis, a great writer, who, you know, uh, just looked at, and I raised my hand and said, Mr. Faraday, I, I think I might be in the wrong group. And he was, you know, he had seen me before, right? He had seen <laughs> literaries, uh, literary writers come and go. Um, and he's like, oh, you think you're in the wrong group? Well, you've got a crime in your first 10 pages, kid. Are you going to solve it? And I'm like, I don't know, uh, maybe. And he's like, yeah, well, if you solve it, it's possible you're a crime writer. Just think about it. Just, just, you know, just sit with it for a while. Yeah. Um, and it turned out he was right. Wow. That's a, I mean, thank heavens for him. Right? <laughs> he, for- <laughs> absolutely. He saved me. He thinks that that story makes him sound mean, but uh, he was not mean. He was very supportive and, you know, even just that one question, are you going to solve it? It changed yeah. my entire life. Yeah. Are you, you, you know, are you going to complete the, the journey for the reader of, of this crime? Or is this just something you're dangling well, in there? Are you going to, I mean, are you even thinking about this? Are you even looking ahead and thinking, you know, what is this story? And of course I wasn't because it was a short story the week before. Right. So, you know, for me, it was finished. But once he asked me that question, I knew, okay, well, to finish this novel, apparently, uh, as my teacher thinks I should, I have to solve that crime. Okay, well, let's see if I can do that. And learning to write a novel is a whole other process, but it sounds like you got some support in figuring that out as well. Um, but were you pulling yourself towards thrillers or suspense or, you know, like, how, how would you classify your, your writing <laughs> oh, that's a real, that's the hardest question you could possibly ask me, Julie. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I have never had a really great look figuring out where I fit in, in the landscape. Um, crime novel is what I, is what I call it. Yeah. Cause there's a crime in it. And that's, I mean, so far every book has been a little different. So, um, as long as I'm, you know, if I'm writing crime, then, you guys won't kick me out of Bouchercon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fingers crossed. That's where I like to be. <laughs> uh, but you know, it, it, who knows, who knows what the next project will be. I like to do something a little different with every project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so each one is sort of, well, let's see where this one goes. Yeah. And it's been, uh, you know, you were first published. How long did it take you to get published? You were first published in 2014 was when my first novel, The Black Hour, came out. It took about two and a half years to write and then uh, not very long at all to get an agent. And then um, maybe a year before it sold or maybe less than that. And then, you know, a year and a half before it was on the shelves. And was that the first, was that that short story? It was that not. That was expanded? It was not. Actually, the short story, I did expand it. I wrote the full draft of a novel, or just a really terrible one, and, <laughs> and, and knew it. I mean, I think that's what an MFA is good for. It, it, you, you can tell how terrible you are. Um, so I shelved it. I put it in the drawer. I have a, a folder on my computer called The Drawer. And it went to live there, and I started something new. And the new thing that I started became the black hour. Um, wow. Yeah. And I did actually go back and dig out the novel that was in the drawer and rewrite it completely. And then that was published as my third novel, The Day I Died. Wow. So that's, I mean, you were able to, having written two books, look at it with a, a completely fresh vision and say, okay, that's why this wasn't working. Yeah. I mean, I worked on the short story and then the novel that it turned into for probably about 
four years before, all told, before I put it away. And then when I took it out, I had written and published The Black Hour and then written Little Pretty Things. And I just, I could just see so much more clearly all the problems that I had built into this story. I just hadn't given, you know, the character anything to do. I hadn't given her anyone to react again, like really basic stuff. Like, no wonder this is so boring. (laughs) (laughs) She needs somebody to talk to. (laughs) Well, I mean, it sounds like basic, but it's also you're learning over time. And it, it, uh, from what you're saying, it's, you're very open to learning and to criticism into adjusting into figuring things out. Does that sound fair? Yeah. Um, I mean, nobody likes criticism, but I, I would rather hear it, you know, before the book is published, (laughs) I would like to have the feedback so that I, the feedback so that I can, uh, you know, make it as good as it can be. Absolutely. And I, I like learning new craft things. I think that's, I'm just amusing myself is what I tell people. I'm just always, um, I set little, uh, intellectual exercises is what I used to call them, but that sounds so pompous. Um, I should come up with something else to call it, but just like little assignments for myself, like little, uh, for the black hour, it was, um, I had two first person narrators and my assignment to myself was, you know, can I make these two first person narrators sound not like each other? So that when you pick up, you know, you put the book down for a second, you come back, you can tell exactly, you know, who's speaking, that kind of thing. And then for my mm-hmm. latest book, The Lucky One, it was now I have two third person close narrators. They absolutely have to sound, you know, there, there has to be something you can tell about them that's different from the other sections so that, you know, this is who's speaking. And, you know, you write, you don't write series, you write standalones. Are you, do you marinate several ideas at once? I mean, how do you come up with a, a you know, what, what's going to be your next project? That is such a timely question, Julie, and a dirty one. <laughs> uh, I'm sitting here sort of marinating, not in ideas, but in doubt, um, I, I don't know what my next book is going to be. So usually before one book is finished and off to the races, I know what my next book is going to be. I have something on the back burner or I've just had a really good I- idea recently. That's like, yes, this is, this is the one, um, for this one. Uh, so I'm, I, I just finished a, a big project, which I think you're probably going to ask me about. Um, but because it was such a big project, maybe, you know, uh, maybe career changing, maybe career ending, (laughs) the jury's still out. Um, it has been very difficult to figure out what to follow it up with. So, um, sometimes I have like ideas written down here and there and, you know, sometimes I shop through them, but, uh, that's not usually how a novel for me, it's usually something that I just, I can't stop thinking about. And so it's just now is the time I get to explore it. Um, well, let, let's talk about this project because <clears throat> there are a few aspects of it that I'm, I'm assuming are part of the reasons that it was such a big project. Um, it is a historical novel. So there's reams and reams of research that needs to be done because people who read historical fiction really want you to be accurate. I mean, don't scare me. Don't scare me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it was also an idea. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Death of Greenway? Because you and I have talked about it, but it's a fascinating um, way you got yourself into this story. Well, the idea came from... um, I was reading a book by John Curran called uh, Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks. And it is just, I mean, for people like us who love Agatha Christie and love murder (laughs) mysteries, it is simultaneously so interesting and inspiring figuring out how Agatha Christie worked um, and, and simultaneously great reading right before bed because it's just, it's like a list of her books and how she wrote them and, and what pieces were found in which notebook. Um, but it's so, it, to me, it was fascinating. But in the introduction, there's uh, just a quick little half a sentence where uh, I can't remember if it's John or maybe it's Matthew, uh, Agatha Christie's 
grandson says uh, something about how Greenway uh, housed children during World War II. The evacuees were sent to Greenway. And I sat up in bed because that is my Venn diagram as a circle. Uh, evacuated children, bed knobs and broomsticks at Agatha right. Christie's house. That is a story. I have to read that story. And I just assumed somebody had written it. Uh, and, and as it turned out, nobody had. So, um, yeah, it was like a lightning bolt for me. It sent me off looking to find the book. And then when the book wasn't to be found, I, I had to think, oh, you're supposed to write that book. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. That's what Toni Morrison says. You're supposed to write that book. Damn you, Toni Morrison. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't sure I was the right person to write that book. I'm obviously not English. Um, I am not a historian in any way. I'm not a research junkie the way some historical writers are. Uh, I am not an instruction manual kind of gal. I like to jump in and start writing a story and then figure, you know, figure out my way out of it later. And this was going to require uh, just a different approach in, in a lot of ways. So I was, I was understandably nervous about taking on this story. So I sat on it for many years, uh, I guess just assuming that, you know, it's been this long, any minute now, someone else will write this story. Um, right. But obviously it didn't happen. Um, so I started sort of dabbling in research and just finding, feeling my way through it, really, just uh, finding a little info here, finding a little info here. Um, with the idea that maybe someday, someday I would have the chance to write this story. And then I, I got a two book deal offer from HarperCollins William Morrow for my fourth book under, no, fifth book, The Lucky One, and which I had written. And also, usually it's like untitled number six. Uh, but in this case, I said, well, what, what, about that, uh, what about that thing you were telling me you wanted to write? And suddenly it was my front burner project overnight. It, I mean, within minutes, it went from someday to, oh, I need to do this now. And there's a deadline. Great. Wow. Wow. And had you, you'd been noodling this in the research that goes into these kinds of books is just ongoing. I mean, you could be doing it forever. But did you have an idea for how the the center of the story or were did, did you in tackling this sort of find it by, by your creative process? I definitely didn't have any, uh, well, I had a preconceived notion of what the story would be, but I, I was wrong. My goal for the story was to write it as close to uh, fact as I could it, to use as much fact as I could. There is no crime story that happened during this time period at Greenway, right? That part right. is going to be a fiction. Um, some historical readers would be very upset with that, but that's there just there was nothing terrible happening at Greenway during World War II. They all survived. Um, but uh, what, one of the first things I learned starting the research uh, while I was at Greenway, actually, uh, I went to visit uh, when I was in England. I went to a crime conference. I visited a friend who lives there, and she and I drove down to Greenway and just you know touristed through the the grounds a little bit. I learned while I was there that they were 10 children under the age of five, which I mean, was just a rock between the eyes because it was suddenly not (laughs) bed knobs and broomsticks at Agatha Christie's house. It was, it wasn't the Goonies having, you know, Agatha Christie adventures. It was a bunch of babies, man. And, um, I, I don't, you know, I don't really write about little kids. I don't have any children. I like other people's children, um, but I, I don't really want to uh, tell a story uh, told by a five-year-old. So I, it was, it, that kind of ruined things for me. And people have said so many times, well, why don't you just make it five children who were 10 then? Why didn't you just change it? And again, my goal was to use as much of the actual fact as I could find. And then when I ran out of fact, start making up a story. Um, mm-hmm. So I now knew that there were 10 children under the age of five. And so that's what had to happen. That's who had to be there. Um, and then I started trying to figure out who else had been in the house, who had really been in the house. I remember no one's written about it. Um, the only thing that had been written about it that I could find was a sort of letter that one of the children, uh, when she was much older, 
wrote back to Greenway and said, this is what I remember about being there. Um, and she actually uh, came back, went back to visit and uh, visited the house while the National Trust was uh, remodeling it and did a little hard hat tour with her husband. And she's a grandmother at this point. Um, but her letter with uh, what she remembered uh, became basically the, you know, the starting point because I could at least, I had some pieces, I had some moments that these, that this child remembered having while she was in the house. Other than that, it was all, let's make it up. The other thing I knew was that, well, this is what Agatha Christie says in her autobiography, um, that there were children and then Mrs. Arbuthnot uh, brought them down, she and her husband. Um, and then there were two hospital nurses, Agatha Christie says. And it may be wrong. It may be that they were actually the two daughters of the Arbuthnots or actually Mrs. Arbuthnot's daughters. That's what the little girl who's now, you know, 83 tells me. But um, it's, Agatha said it was two hospital nurses. So that's uh, what I clung on to. And now I have two hospital nurses causing a lot of trouble at Greenway. <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, so this is partly a stretch for you. I mean, all your books have been stretches. It's also a passion project. It's also very different than things you've written in the past. <clears throat> so refilling your creative well and thinking about next projects or just, um, you know, anticipating the release of this book, I, you know, are, how are you taking care of yourself? How are you <laughs> reinvigorating yourself or how are you, um, you know, opening yourself up to, to new ideas? That is an excellent question. I am watching a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's filling the well, although I do get inspired by uh, certain kinds of television shows. And I also, of course, love, you know, British baking, all the comfort, uh, Nadia shows, uh, they're yeah. very comforting. So that's self-care, hashtag self-care. Um, I have a puppy who keeps me very busy and that's very good for me. I didn't have a dog for a short time during the pandemic and I do not recommend it. Um, reading, I'm trying to catch up with my reading, um, as you know, uh, it's so easy to just buy a you know, metric ton of books because you want to read them and then right. never get around to it. And just kind of um, following following my bliss is to use a, a phrase that I would never in a million years have used except to talk to you, Julie. Um, <laughs> but just like whatever interests me, you know, just kind of like, you mm-hmm. know, well, let's go, let's go scratch that itch for a few minutes and see what happens. Um, and not all of it is going to end up being anything. Most of it will end up being nothing, but you know, what else can you do? I could just sit here. Eventually I'm probably going to have to just go in after it with a, with an X, but I don't know where to look yet. It's, it's completely hidden to me at the moment. Well, because writing a book while magical and joyous is a lot of work. And so you want to sort of have the idea that is that you want to spend a lot of time with. I mean, you, you to do that work, it's got to be something that interests you or sparks something. Um, so finding that is is a challenge. It's a as year well. of your life, at least. You know, it's it's yeah. something you have to spend every day. I'm not every day with, uh, but most of your day is with, and it's it has to be something that you really want to spend time with. Back when I was uh, writing my what became my first book, I was working a full time job. And writing during my lunch hours, mm-hmm. and I it I just had to make it as much fun as possible. Otherwise, there were so many other things I could do with those lunch hours, like talk to people, you know, have lunch with friends, go shopping. There were so many things I could have been doing. I just had to have a story that I really wanted to finish. And you made the time to write that story on your lunch hours. It doesn't have to be perfect or three hours at my desk with my tea. It it was, you know, 35 minutes during my lunch hour, I'm going to write. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you have learned a lot. You've taken craft classes, but you also teach, you, you, um, you run a conference and, and things like that. What are, for you, what was the worst piece of writing advice you've ever got or the best piece? But also, what what writing advice do you share with people as, as you're encouraging them on their own journeys? 
The best piece of advice, uh, one of at least, and I've gotten so much good advice over the years, um, was from uh, Claire O'Donohue, uh, Chicago land writer. She was. Uh, you guys stole her on the East Coast. <laughs> um, she told me early on that she had been given the piece of advice that writing was a was a business. And a lot of people don't come into writing thinking it's a business, but it's a business, it's a small business and you should treat it like a small business. You should get serious about it. You should, you know, keep your receipts and, and think about how you want to run this small business and get it off the ground, which, um, I absolutely was, I mean, I mean, I had to be told I was writing a novel. I had to be told I was writing a mystery novel. I was absolutely the person who needed to be told <laughs> writing is going to be a business. So, right. or it will be if you treat it like one. Um, so that was helpful advice. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever received, well, I guess I have received this, um, advice just generally from a lot of directions in the, uh, you know, how, you get the writing done category, the, you know, that it matters how you get the writing done or that you should have, you know, this many words written every single day, or you should write it in this way, or you should, you have to have an outline. I, for a while, a couple years ago, I heard outline advice everywhere. And I thought, did something just happen? Did, (laughs) you know, did something change? Um, I, I get why, people give advice like this because that's what worked for them. And when they're asked to answer questions on podcasts, perhaps, or at events, they mm-hmm. have to be authorities. They're authors. They have to have authority. So they have to stand up and say whatever it is that worked for them and what this is what worked for me and therefore it should work for you. And I think it absolutely is a good idea to try things that people suggest. Um, I, for instance, just set up my phone to have a headpiece so that I could try to dictate stories, something that I, I foresee not working for my brain. I just don't think I'm that kind of writer, but Jess Lowry suggested it, and Jess Lowry is very smart, and so I'm going to give it a try. We'll see. But I, I hate it when people say, this is what you should do. You should write every, or you have to write every day. That is absolutely not true. You have to write more days than you don't. That's probably true. But you don't have, because it sets people up for failure. If you tell someone they have to do it a certain way and they can't, you know, they can't write every day because they are raising a child or they have, you know, a hard job or long hours or, you know, life circumstances that keep them from writing every day, then you've just made them a failure before they've even begun. Which is unfair for sure. So the writing journey is the, you know, part of it. But when you talked about the excellent advice about thinking about the business, the publishing journey is a separate journey. You know, you can't, you're, you have to claim your writing success for its own thing. And then your publishing journey is its own, uh, its own journey. You've had six, great success on your publishing journey. Um, what surprised you about that journey? Hmm. That is interesting. Um, I think because I did an MFA program, a master of fine arts program, I did have a little bit of a heads up about what publishing was and wasn't, uh, which was helpful. Um, you know, I was sort of prepared for, uh, difficulty, um, and that maybe writing would end up being the greatest part of it all. Um, I know one of the things that surprised me was how many people would touch my book to make it a book. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's yeah. your little baby project. It's in your arms only for a very long time. You know, sometimes a really long time. And then... Here comes somebody who wants to publish it, but then they want to put their thumbprint on it. And then here comes another person who says, you know, that person sent them to copy edit you. And here's another person who says, I'm here to proofread. And here's another person who says, this is the book cover I think you should have. And you're like, oh, no, that's not right. (laughs) Um, And here's the person who's writing the, you know, the copy that goes in the back. And you're like, okay, wait, that is not what this book is. You know, they're just all these people who have 
a chance to tell you what your own book is about. And it can be very uh, disconcerting, I think. And, and not all those people are right. You know, sometimes they have to design the book cover maybe without having read it. And, right. or, they, or they're writing the, the, they've read some brief about the book and they're writing the back cover copy from that brief, not from writing, reading the book, but from some brief, right? Um, I just think, um, but one thing I learned is that you can be an advocate for your own book. You don't want to be the squeaky wheel, but you want to be the professional who says, here's where I think we need to compromise and here are my ideas. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but let's, let's try some things. Well, you've also got the design brain like you and you you know wrote those medical articles and you so you've got the whole business of publishing part of your ethos too so that when you say that to somebody it's with knowledge it's not just like oh I don't like that color you know <laughs> it's like finally have those <laughs> medical articles did come in handy <laughs> right but that's your part of your training ground you you know you're um, because I think sometimes that the number of people who touch a book, if you're an indie author, you still got to have all of those roles filled. You may be doing them all, but make sure that you're the best person to do those things. Absolutely. That well. you might have to hire somebody to, to do the parts that you're not as good at. Absolutely. I, I think the marketing, uh, communications background has been very good, uh, for me as a, as an author, just having, an idea of not always of exactly what I want, but maybe um, a little bit better direction for us to explore. And, and it's, you know, I, I have never designed my own book cover, but being in conversation with the designers, you know, and using the correct terms and making the correct, you know, the suggestions using their language has been helpful, I think. Yeah. No, you bring a lot to the table for sure. Um, so you are the immediate past president of Sync National. Um, can we talk about Sisters in Crime and what the role that this organization has played in your writing career? Absolutely. Um, I joined Sisters in Crime early on. I think I, I, there's a, I don't think it's a tweet. I think it's a Facebook message that I put up when I first joined Sisters in Crime, and I have a little screen capture of it. Um, I joined it, you know, very early on before I had an agent, before I had a book manuscript, before obviously I had an editor or a publisher. I joined, I joined both Sisters in Crime and Mystery Writers of America, and I got involved first in Mystery Writers of America, and then eventually in Sisters of Crime locally, um, helping my chapter out because I needed a communications person. And I thought, well, I could, I could help with that. And, you know, you know, that always, that's a slippery slope for me. If someone says <laughs> we need help and I'm like, yeah, I should stop doing that. Um, <laughs> but I love, you know, I love the mystery community and it's so easy to help the mystery. You know, it's, it's so interesting to help the mystery community to get involved and to learn so much and to be around these great people. So I joke about it, but it was, it's the best thing. It's, you know, the best way I think to get into this community and to become a part of it is to join Sisters in Crime. And then, you know, when you see somebody needing help, if you need, it doesn't have to be communications. It can be, you know, helping bring snacks to a meeting or putting chairs out at a meeting. Um, you know, you just get to meet the people and talk to them and talk to your heroes. The best thing I did is uh, when I joined MWA within, I think my first or second meeting, I became the um, newsletter editor that again, slippery slope for me. <laughs> I get very nervous around open uh, volunteer positions. Um, I got to email and they, they shared the list of members with me so I could, um, you know, populate articles with quotes from our members. And I got to email these great people and it was I'm like, this is the best job ever. It's, it's a, a really well-kept secret that you, you know, volunteer and you get to meet all your heroes. Yeah. At yeah. my second, at my first Bachelor Con, I didn't know anybody. At my second Bachelor Con, I sat next to Mary Higgins Clark. Like that is, <laughs> that's one year, one year <laughs> for those listening at home. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Well, and community is <clears throat> a part of the writing journey and the publishing journey that we don't understand right away. That that as uh, you, you always think of writing as being so solitary, but it, the community makes such a difference in both journeys. Um, mentoring, teaching, you know, supporting, <laughs> advocating. Like there's so many different reasons to be part of the community. Absolutely. I think one of the things um, that when you're a beginning writer and you, you know, you don't, even, you don't have anything finished, you're not even sure you can do this thing. It seems weird to join the professional organization. I think there's sort of a mental block there where they think, oh, I can't join until I have X whatever X is. Sometimes it's a book finish. Sometimes it's an agent. Sometimes it's an editor, but you actually, that's when you should join. You get way more out of the organization. If you join early on, when you're still struggling to figure out who you are, what you're writing, um, you know, what, what you want to do with this, this idea that you have, you can learn so much from, again, your heroes, but also people who are just a couple of steps ahead of you who have figured out the, the thing that you haven't quite figured out. Um, I like to call it like casual mentoring because you don't mm -hmm. actually have to have somebody's full attention to be mentored by them. They're modeling behavior. They're modeling um, how the community works, how publishing works. And all you have to do is pay attention. And you can, you can easily pay attention if you join the group that they're in. I think Sisters in Crime is great that way. And Sisters of Crime can also meet you at whatever level you are. There's there's stuff for you if you're pre-published, if you're beginning, middle, and uh, established in your career. Absolutely. Which, I'm pretty yeah. sure I made up the word pre-published, and I, I like that you're using it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll put an asterisk in the show notes <laughs> and attribute it to you. Um, the other thing that I just want to touch on, because another great way to meet community and to especially locally meet your people um, is through conferences. And so you've created a conference that has a wonderful reputation, has gone online for the last couple of years, but because running a conference is not for the faint of heart <laughs> and not an easy thing to do. You do it with the fabulous Dana Kay. Um, so can you talk about, you know, why you decided to do this and, and sort of how it started? And I'm sure... <clears throat> when it's, you know, you finish after a year, you're like, I'm never doing this again, but you know, <laughs> you, you keep going. Um, Murder and Mayhem in Chicago had, uh, it had, I like the, I like the origin story of this a little bit. So I'll, I'll tell it. Um, Dana Kay asked me once if I would answer a few questions about event planning, uh, which is something that I, as, as part of my day job at the university where I worked at the time, I, I was doing some of that work. And I had lots of opinions. So, I, of course, she bought me lunch and I talked to her about event planning because she was thinking about um, recreating the model that had been created in Wisconsin, Murder and Mayhem in Muskegon at the time. And then they moved to Milwaukee um, and, and had it for, there for a couple of years. Um, and she wanted to recreate that, that energy in Chicago, and which I thought was a fantastic idea. Uh, Chicago at the time, Chicagoland had Love is Murder, uh, which was a long running a mystery conference. Um, but it, it actually uh, was sort of phasing out right at that moment. We didn't know it when we were having this conversation, but um, almost immediately they announced that they were um, canceling and, and I guess not having the event anymore. And, and we were like, well, oh, it has to be now. Um, but so she asked me to come, you know, give her some advice on event planning. Now that I know her better, I'm like, why would Dana Kay, a publicist, need my <laughs> advice on? Yeah. Um, so she got some advice from me. And then we, I was helping her uh, think about space. And then I'm at this, you know, going on a tour of the spaces. I mean, my first clue. <laughs> I think I said I would love to be on the committee. And then at the space, when we were uh, getting a tour of one of the possible spaces, um, she introduced me as her co-chair. So that was my first indication that I was <laughs> in it up to my neck. But the good thing is, um, when you're doing a project with Dana Kay, she's fantastic. She, you know, mm -hmm. she's a pro. And it has never been 
too much work. It's been a lot of work, but it hasn't been too much work. And, you know, for the, the, the feedback we get and the, the benefits we get, you know, she gets to have some of her clients on the stage. I get to have some of my siblings on the stage. And, um, it's a, it's a great conference. I think it's one day, one stage, everybody gets to see everything. There's a chance to mingle. There's a book room, uh, where everybody gets to, you know, buy books by the people, uh, the panelists and have them sign. It's, it's about 300 people. We're kind of busting out of the seams, um, where we are. We ended up having it at, uh, Roosevelt university, as a matter of fact, where I get my MFA, uh, they co-host it with us, uh, which is very lucky for us. That's it, great. It's a great space. Um, but then the pandemic, of course, hit, and we uh, were the first mystery event to pivot to virtual. The week mm-hmm. before was the Left Coast Crime in San Diego that got canceled on its first day. Um, I had canceled on Left Coast Crime because I was worried about getting stuck away from Chicago, um, you know, getting caught out there away from our conference. Um, and then we realized we were going to have to cancel our conference. So, um, we canceled it. And then Dana said, uh, Lori, what if we went virtual? And I was like, no, I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) I was a total brat about it. I I just, again, I'm not the instruction manual kind of girl. I just, I just wanted to be with my feelings and sad about it. Um, but she was like, what if I just do it? And like, okay. So she's the one who got back in touch with the speaker, the people we had uh, invited and said, what do you, what do you think about doing a virtual event and, and put it together. And then finally, you know, I was like, all right, what do I do? What, how can I help? (laughs) So now we run it together, but really Dane is the one to, to thank for pivoting to virtual. And it's been great. We've actually done twice a year because of the virtual space. That's great. So when is the next Conference. That is an excellent question. Um, I think we will probably do one this fall. I don't think we have a date picked out yet. I am trying to remember. Um, sometime in early November, I would guess. And then uh, we hope to be back in person in the spring. Mm-hmm. Question mark. That's always, of course, um, up to uh, greater entities than us, but that's a possibility. But I think we, I think we, we like the one in person, one virtual. So that might be the new model. I think that's a great model because then people from all over the country can go. But um, there is nothing like being in a room with other people um, and that energy. Uh, but I think that that we've learned that these hybrid models are actually probably more effective. Absolutely. Um, Our first, the first virtual, the one that you know we canceled everything, gave everybody everybody's fees back. And then just open the doors, a thousand people showed up. Wow. I mean, it was free, wow. obviously, but it, you know, back when we were just figuring out how long we were going to have to be in lockdown, I think people were very comforted by the chance to be in a room, quote unquote, room again. Yeah. So you, you know, immediate past president, you're, um, you know, running conference, you're writing, you're, you know, giving, and you're also, you know, what, what do you get back from all of this? What's, how does, how does being so active in this community help feed you? I mean, being active in the community, it gave me everything. I absolutely think that being active in uh, SYNC and NWA early on, gave me access to all the people that I'm now friends with, you know, all the people who blurred me, all the people Mm -hmm. who showed me how it was done and, and got me there faster. Just like Terry Faraday saying, are you going to solve it? He cut to the chase. He got me there, you know, two years I would have taken probably, um, to figure that out. And it's the same thing can be said for being a member of Sisters in Crime. I just feel like I was given a key to the city and, and so paying it back is it's just a no-brainer. It it just seems like it's the thing to do, but also you do get so much out of being um, you know, the sync president. I got a lot out of being the sync president, even though I was the pandemic president. 
um, and unseen by human eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, unable to, you know, go to the breakfast. Typically, Sisters in Crime has a breakfast at Bouchik on a breakfast at Malice, and that's so much fun. And cancel those and (laughs) And not too many parties going on during my presidency. I mean, I feel like all I did was write uh, announcements, you know, about things we couldn't do. Just (laughs) stop doing those things. I kept saying (laughs) to the public, be safe, be safe, (laughs) please be safe, please. Um, I I think, but I think you get a lot out of, out of the community. I mean, I, I absolutely believe that, um, you know, the lucky one being an Agatha nominee, my first Agatha nomination is from being the Sisters in Crime national president, having a, you know, a moment where people are like, oh, she exists. You know, I, there's a, I wouldn't, I'd say there's a platform, but I don't think I actually, actually ever stood on it. Or maybe I did. I, I guess there was a malice where I was sort of bossing people around on stage. <laughs> I think I was still vice president at that time, but, um, you know, I got a chance to meet new people and uh, speak for Sisters in Crime, you know, a few times. And um, that's been valuable for my career as well. But I'm ready for a break. So nobody yes. asked me to do anything, please. <laughs> Katrina McPherson did an um, interview on here, and she said after being president and immediate past president, she made a policy to say no to everything for five years. <laughs> <laughs> That is an excellent policy that I have now just adopted. (laughs) Well, we'll see how you do with that. Um, Congratulations on Death at Greenway. We're all looking forward to that release. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And can I just say I'm pretty excited that there is a podcast. It was a little twinkle in the eye when I was national president. So kudos to you and Sandra for making it uh, a reality. No, it's an absolute pleasure. It's so much fun talking to people about their writing journeys. So especially you this week. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.